praise God to songs that glorify Him. Um, there's a, a lot of examples in the Bible of people that praise God through music. For instance, Psalms 40 verse 3 says, He puts a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Music is a beautiful way to praise God. And I practice that every day in my car. Sometimes I, when I drive up, it's like the window's down and I'm screaming, this is amazing grace, but feel with me. But uh, I enjoy it and I practice that every day and especially Sundays. How do you praise God, Terry? Like you, I also praise through music. Um, but in other ways as well. Sometimes I can praise God in a walk and just seeing His majesty all around me. Other times I can praise God, um, it might sound silly, but by cooking a meal for somebody yeah. and just being fully present and in the moment. That was pretty cool, yeah? Let's give him a hand. That's awesome. I've actually been loving following some of these series, uh, following along with what you guys have been doing as a church. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, my name is Steve, and I was on staff here for a long time. Now I'm currently a pastor at Valley Christian. Uh, hello to everyone over in the traditional service. I think some people have been asking, like, what's it like coming back? And I'm like, it, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like riding a bike, I hope, you know, that you never quite like forget like how to preach, you know. So we'll see at the end of this, you know, like everything in school, you guys can give me a grade and it'll be okay. And I'll just throw it away because this doesn't matter to me. But I'm, a, I'm now a pastor at Valley and it's really actually an amazing story of how God's kind of brought me back around to this because Valley Christian is actually where I became a follower of Jesus. It's where I met my wife 20 years ago and we started dating our senior year. And so it's amazing, like all these different connections I have back at the school and at the same time it can feel totally awkward going on to a high school campus every single day. But as I was starting to date Kate, like starting our senior year, I remember she started bringing me like into her house and we spent a lot of time around her dinner table. And her dinner table is where she like cooked my first meal and, and it's like from the 80s and it was awesome. There's all these little marks that you have on the dinner table. And this week my uh, in-laws decided that they were going to remodel their entire kitchen and that it was time for them to get rid of this dinner table. And that on all of a sudden this table that you're like, oh, it's so old. Like, what, like why do you still have this? All of a sudden like, I, I got filled with all of these memories from the past 20 years, right? I don't know if you guys have that feeling as well, but I went back and I started like going through all of these memories. Like this is where Kate made the very first meal. I'd never, you know, like my family's from Vietnam, so I, did, I had no idea what pot roast was, you know, and I had this and I was like, this is a gift from God. Like whatever this is, is amazing. Um, this is the place where like I sat there and I'm used to eating all of their food and, and I went to go ask uh, like Kate's parents for permission to marry their daughter, you know, and normally like I'm eating everything in this house, but the day I came in, I was like so nervous. I was like sitting at the table and like, I'm just kind of pushing my food around, right? Like I'm pushing this thing. And then, then like Dave, Kate's dad was like, Steve, like what is wrong? You know? And I was like, well, actually I was, I was kind of wondering if it'd be okay if I married your daughter. And he was like, what? I was like, 
Wrong answer, bro. All right? A simple yes would have sufficed. But he's like, no, of course. I was like, okay, thanks for leaving me hanging, okay? Um, this table is where we announced to them that, like, hey, like, we're pregnant. And by we're, I mean, like, I'm not, but my wife was pregnant, you know? And, like, we we're having a baby. So all of this life around the dinner table. And so depending on where you grew up or how you grew up, the dinner table is kind of like this iconic representation of home and hospitality, isn't it? You think back and you look back at your own life and your own circumstances and whether it's good or bad, we kind of have this conception of what hospitality and what the dinner table represents. We're about to enter into Thanksgiving. I'm very excited about Thanksgiving and Christmas. And you think about the people that you have all around the table. And virtually every culture on this planet, the table is kind of this hallmark of invitation and hospitality, whether uh, we've been in Guatemala in this little shack and you're literally sitting next to this bucket and that's the dinner table, that it's a symbol of invitation and welcome. Uh, whether you've gone to India or you've traveled to the south and you think about southern hospitality and you think about southern food, right? Or maybe you haven't traveled to any of these places, but you've seen Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> you, know, you get to remember that, 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 that scene where they're sitting at the table and Candle starts whipping out the show, you know, and it's like, be our guest, be our guest. Right? Everything kind of centers around the table. Um, one of my favorite essayists, uh, the late, great Anthony Bourdain, says that he captures the role of hospitality and community. And he says, around a dinner table, you learn a lot about someone when you sit and you share a meal together. Now, why do I share all of this? You've been on this series talking about together, and we've been unpacking Paul's prayer to open up the letter to the Philippians. And what he does is he begins to establish some foundational values for what it means to be a Christian community. And as I've been following along in this series, what does it mean for us to be a holy people who are set apart, who are marked by grace and peace? How do we become a community of true partnership that is unlike any other social contract that we have on this planet in which we are a part of this contract or a part of this partnership as long as I get some kind of benefit? Where everywhere else in the world you are a part of a community as long as your preferences are met. But instead, as Danny talked about, that the partnership that we see within the church, that we see in the book of Philippians, is that partnership is actually a bond of unbreakable trust and covenant. And then last week, I was driving along, trying to fight back my tears. And for whatever reason, uh, like I was listening to the sermon last week, and Dale would call me in that moment. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to listen to you right now, so I know what I'm talking about today. Um, and we went through this process of repentance and, and thinking back and thinking back and letting go of the different decades that we've been a part of as a church and as a community. And I remember just like pausing, getting to the decade that I was a part of here at Calvary, thinking about all of these incredible memories I had of spending my mid-20s to my mid-30s here and investing in the life of this church and this community, of celebrating and taking in all of the incredible memories we have. And at the same time, having a moment to repent of even my own hurts that I've contributed to this community because that's the reality of what it means to be a community. That if you want to be a community, that it's not all fun and games and it's great and it's beautiful all the time, that there's some real messiness when it comes to who we are. And I thought about how incredible that is to begin to build a church and a community that's unlike anything else that is out there in the world. That you're not leading with this, this beautiful, sexy marketing or like this social media strategy or this corporate strategy that you put together and you're like, look at this business plan, that's awesome. But when you look at the, the kingdom of God, you look at how churches are built, that it's completely different to everything else that we know. 
And I thought of how amazing and how important that is, especially in a time and a place in which people view the church with suspicion and distrust, that repentance keeps this organization humble, that it makes us to remember, hey, we're not just this building of bricks and all of this incredible programming and the lights and, pro and, and all of the technology. But we remind ourselves that the people who gather here are human, that we have some beautiful, wonderful moments to celebrate. And there are ways that we hurt each other because that's what it means to be a family, that we hurt and we forgive and we come back together and for me to go through all of this process. And so today, when we continue in this series, I want to talk about something that is really foundational to the Christian church. And if I'm really honest with you, it's really foundational to my own life. And that's the value of hospitality. And when it comes to hospitality, hospitality is actually what the mission of God looks like in our neighborhoods. If you want to know the story of the gospel, if you want to sum up the entire story of the Bible, then we just have to look at hospitality because hospitality is a reflection of the mission of God and how he's going to rescue people and how he's going to rescue us to bring us back into relationship with him. And so today is going to be a little bit nerdy, but that's just the way I am. So we're going to cruise with it. And I want to do three things today. The three things I want to do is I want to give you just an overview of how hospitality reflects God's heart for all people. The second thing I want to do is to look at how Jesus actually lived out this hospitality in the Gospels. And the last thing I want to do is to take a moment to have us imagine for a moment to consider what hospitality might look like in your life. And it has nothing to do with your home. It has nothing to do with what you possess, but it has everything to do with your heart. And so the first thing that I want to dive in today is say that hospitality reflects the heart of God for all people. And when you go throughout the scriptures, there is this connection between hospitality and the heart of God. In fact, if I were to ask you, why is Abraham so famous in the Old Testament? You might be like I did. You're like, you think of the songs. You know, Father Abraham had many kids, and many kids have Father Abraham, right? Like, that's what you think. You're like, he's the father and the patriarch of Israel. But if you go into the Middle East and you ask, why is Abraham so famous? They would refer to his hospitality. Because in Genesis 18, if you guys remember that story, you can just kind of write this down. But he ends up getting visited by these three guests. If you guys remember in Genesis 18, it ends up actually being God. And there he, he accepts these three strangers who come out of nowhere and he prepares a table with bread and cheese, which tells us one really important fact. Pizza is biblical, okay? Um, like it's probably a Neapolitan. It was amazing, right? Homemade bread and cheese. And we find out when he's hosting these three strangers that he ends up hosting God himself. In fact, this value of hospitality is something that we see throughout the Middle East to this very day. And so in the Old Testament, hospitality is actually about a posture of the heart. See, hospitality is a reflection of God's grace and generosity to us. That the reason why that we give hospitality as people who believe in Christ and believe in what God has done for us is because God has shown us hospitality first. And I remember having this conversation and thinking about how easy is it for us to love hospitality, right? Like if you go to a hotel, your entire Yelp review is based on how they receive you. We love receiving hospitality, but the truth is it's difficult for us to give. How about you? I sense that in my own life. When it comes to hospitality, you're like, oh, man, like I love receiving it, but it's difficult to give. 
Jesus is actually going to echo this in Matthew 25, in which he uses some of this language. And it's interesting for you to follow this trajectory all the way throughout the scriptures. But he says in Matthew 25, he says, I was a stranger and you invited me in. And he tells the story and then the, as the people responding back to the king in this story, they're like, when did we see you as a stranger? And he says, well, what you did unto least least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done unto me. And it's actually an echo that takes us all the way back to Abraham and the stories that some of us entertain maybe the presence of God without us even knowing it. And this is so important to me because uh, my kids play soccer, right? And they play soccer now. And I remember like where I'm hanging out with the soccer dads and they know I'm a pastor. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually preaching at Calvary tomorrow. And they're like, oh, cool. Like, what are you preaching about? And I started talking about this hospitality, and I was like, hey, I wanted to just kind of connect that this story and the theme of hospitality all throughout scriptures and all throughout the Old Testament. And he stopped me. He's like, wait a minute. In the Old Testament? God's not very hospitable in the Old Testament. And I was like, whoa, whoa, hang on there. Are you kidding me? Like, there's actually some incredible stuff that's actually happening here in the Old Testament. And this is why I want to dive into this, because we have this perception that when we get to the Old Testament, that God is a different God than the God that we see in the New Testament. But we see over and over again that God actually displays hospitality because it reflects God's heart for all people. In fact, oftentimes when we look through the Old Testament, God uses the examples of Gentiles or people who are non-Jews who end up showing kindness to his people. And in return, God shows kindness to these outsiders and he blesses them. And so if you follow along the story, you see that Egypt welcomes Joseph and his brothers during a great famine in Genesis 47, and God ends up blessing Egypt. Rahab welcomes the Hebrew spies in Joshua 2. David finds shelter and refuge in an enemy Philistine camp in 1 Samuel 27. Elijah is welcomed, in the, uh, welcomed by the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, and he ends up blessing them. And so what we kind of see as we go throughout the story is that God uses these outsiders as exemplars of loving kindness to strangers. And when we look through the story of Israel, it's because the Jews were once strangers, slaves, and exiles. And so they knew what it was like to be an outsider. And they knew what it's like to be vulnerable. And I love that God begins to weave this into the heartbeat of his people because God want, didn't want them just to be like, hey, I want you just to be nice every once in a while and throw a potluck for your neighbors, right? But, Jesus, but God begins to build this sense of hospitality for them to remember that they were once strangers and exiles and he weaves it into their story because God wants them to remember and reflect that the grace that has been given to them, that they have an opportunity to reflect it outward. And so even deep in the heart of the law in Exodus 23, 9, and we see it again in Leviticus 19, it says, Do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels. I love that language of feeling. You know how it feels to be a foreigner because you were foreigners in Egypt. And whenever Israel forgets that they were once strangers and that they were once foreigners and that they were once exiles, that they find themselves in trouble. In the same way that God sought out strangers, we are to seek out the stranger. This is actually a passage that's actually near and dear to me because my family immigrated here from Vietnam. And my, since my grandpa was actually a part of the U.S. Army, my, side, my mom's side of the family had an easier time coming to the United States, but my dad's family had a much harder time. 
they actually had to go and find a sponsor. And so there was this old couple in Hayward who ended up sponsoring my dad's family. And so I grew up with grandma and grandpa Stone. And for every, and for every Christmas and every birthday until they passed away, we spent it in their house. And they welcomed us, these strangers. And like, I had no idea what they were talking about because they spoke English. My whole family spoke Vietnamese. But when we gathered around this table, I'll never forget what that meant for my family because they knew that this family had gone out of this way. This old couple had nothing to offer except for their sponsorship and he welcomed them in. You see, this is a reflection of what we see in the scriptures and what scripture is teaching us when it talks about this idea of hospitality. Because hospitality is a way of bridging the barriers between people and it reveals the heart and the mission of God to reach all people. This is actually ultimately, ultimately exemplified by Jesus. In fact, the whole point of Paul's letter here in Philippians hinges on this exhortation that we see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, in which he says, in your relationships with one another, right here, in our relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So let's look real quick at how this hospitality plays out in the life of Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus plays out this hospitality all throughout the Gospels. But what I want to do today is to take us just to one chapter. And in this one chapter, it's Luke chapter 7, we see this compilation of four beautiful stories in which the fullness of Jesus' hospitality is played out. And so if you have your Bibles, you could turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Best way to get there, halfway in your Bibles, flip right. Pass all the hard-to-read Hebrew names. Slow down when you get to the names that you would name your sons, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're in Luke chapter 7, okay? And we're going to kind of breeze through this. I'm not going to have time to kind of unpack all of these different passages. But if you just take notes, talk about it in your community groups, in your own devotional time this week, go back and revisit and see how Jesus actually plays out this hospitality in his life. Now, the first thing for us to note that when we look at Luke chapter 7 is that Jesus actually practices a reverse hospitality. And what I mean by the fact that Jesus practices a reverse hospitality is that rather than Jesus say, hey, come into my house, come into my place, one of the things that we see over and over again throughout the Gospels is that Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to go to you. Zacchaeus, today I am going to stay at your house. I don't know if you've ever had friends who have just invited themselves to your house, okay? Jesus did that. He just comes over and sits down at your table, starts eating your food. It's a reverse hospitality. But here's what's so incredible about this story is that it tells and it shows us that rather than God just be like, hey, okay, humanity, come to me, Jesus displays this beautiful movement in which God is constantly coming to us and not to the people that we would expect. That Jesus, in passage after passage throughout the Gospels, he goes to the marginalized, he goes to the enemy, he goes to the brokenhearted, which tells us this, that you don't need to have a home to practice hospitality. Jesus was homeless. That's why he invited himself to your house, right? He comes and he says, you know what, I'm going to where you are. And he practices presence and invitation and belonging. You see, hospitality is the practice of relational generosity towards others. And what I want us to do as we kind of unpack these stories just real quick is for us to see the different ways in which Jesus goes out of his way to meet people where they are and people that we wouldn't expect. And so chapter 7, the very first 10 verses opens up with a story in which Jesus goes and he encounters a centurion, a Roman centurion who was an enemy of Israel. 
And what we see is that Jesus' hospitality lowered the fence for those who they considered other to experience the grace of God. And so to this Roman centurion who remember, why is Israel right now, why are they in, uh, occupied right now? They're occupied because the Roman Empire had come over and just taken, all, taken over all of Palestine. And yet Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, would give him time and space. This would be a lot like seeing a Ukrainian, a Ukrainian priest giving audience to a Russian lieutenant right now. What Jesus does is that incredible, and it would have been so scandalous. The centurion has a servant who is sick, and he hears that Jesus is coming, and he goes up to Jesus. He's like, hey, Jesus, you are a man of authority in the same way that I'm a man of authority. I tell my soldiers, go and do this, and they will go and do that. And so you don't even have to come into my house. Just give the word. Just give the word, and my servant will be healed. And then Jesus upholds this Roman centurion, and he says, there is nobody else in Israel with this kind of faith. And as sort of a fun fact, uh, my wife and I used to lead trips to Israel. And one of the cool things that you see in Capernaum in this town is that you would see one of the synagogues. They found a synagogue of the ancient ruins of a synagogue from the first century. And on the walls, there's a little dedication stone that says that it was built by a Roman centurion. And which is crazy to me, because why would a Roman centurion ever build a Jewish synagogue unless he experienced something incredible? Is it the same guy? I don't know, but I find it very interesting and something worth noting. The second story that we see in Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, is that we see that Jesus' hospitality extended compassion to those who were grieving and traumatized and vulnerable. And in this story, he encounters this woman whose only son dies, which means that she's vulnerable. Because in that world, you lived in a male patriarchy. And so if your only son or your husband are not around, then you are completely vulnerable. And yet Jesus raises him to life. And one of the things that I love about this is that Jesus engages someone in a time of grief and death. In our culture, when it comes to grief and when it comes to death, we have a hard time sitting in that, don't we? It's awkward. It's hard. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. But Jesus comes and he spends time and gives attention to this woman who is vulnerable, who is traumatized, who is outside on the margins. And when I thought about this story, I immediately thought about the history of this church. When I first came here to Calvary, right off the bat, I got here in like January or sometime like that. And for whatever reason, at Las Gatas, there was a string of student deaths. I remember just stepping into that right away thinking, gosh, like how, how are we going to be in this place? And I just remember this church began opening up its doors. And it began opening up these doors to host and the, the, the funerals and the memorials for all of these students. And I remember as they began to kind of unpack over the next couple of years, like different tragedies that were happening on campus, getting a call from the school. And the school was like, hey, we can't officially invite you on this campus, but we're not going to stop you from coming. Because we just need you to be here, to be a presence, to minister, and to serve our students. You see, it's an incredible place for us to come in and step into these places where people feel vulnerable, where people are grieving, where people are traumatized. And I think about today where we talk about mental health being sort of a worldwide epidemic all around. And I believe that there is an opportunity for Christians to step into the space, not to be somebody who is like a counselor and you don't need to have all of your training, but just to be present and to be a friend. You see, hospitality is relational, and it's, how, it's reflected in how we show up and we care for people. The third story that we see in verses 18 through 35 is that Jesus' hospitality highlights his mission to the margins. 
The disciples of John the Baptist go up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we be waiting for somebody else? And he goes and he responds back to these disciples of John. He's like, well, tell them what you've seen. Tell them that the blind see and the lame walk and the leprous are made clean. And he tells them the story and he says, the, all these religious leaders who've come up and they begin to accuse Jesus and they're like, Jesus, like, what, are you, what exactly are you doing? Like, why are you eating and spending all this time with these sinners? And so Jesus goes back and he says, it's so funny because when it came to John the Baptist, because he came in not eating and not drinking, you say, John the Baptist must be possessed with a demon. And now all of a sudden the son of man comes and he's eating and drinking with sinners. You call him a drunkard and a friend of sinners. And what that tells us is that for Jesus, the table was a reflection of the mission of God. One theologian says that Jesus was actually killed because of who he ate with. And so for Jesus, when he comes and he spends all of this time with those who are broken, with those who are lost, with those who are considered sinners, we see that the table is part of how outsiders became family. And so with the time that we have left, I want us just to look real quickly at Luke chapter 7, in which we see that Jesus' hospitality created space at the table for anyone who was in need of grace. And here in Luke chapter 7, at the very end of this, in verse 40, Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. Which is one of the things that I love about this story is because we often think, okay, Jesus went to the house of sinners, he went to the house of tax collectors, but the reality is that Jesus practiced that same hospitality with the Pharisees and the very people that he was going to accuse. And I love this picture that we have that whether you're broken and you know like you are full of sin or you know all the things that maybe you've that have gone wrong in your life, whatever your background is, that Jesus is going to be there for you too. At the same way that you're going to be there for those who are self-righteous, who feel like they have it all together, that Jesus offers the same hospitality to both groups. And so he goes to the house of Simon this Pharisee. And they begin to look at what's happening in the scene because this prostitute begins following Jesus and she's weeping. And she ends up wiping his feet with her tears and anointing him with perfume. And they accuse him and they're like, if Jesus were really a Messiah, would he, he would know the kind of woman that's actually touching his feet. And I want to just pick up the story real quick in verse 40 because this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other one 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And what an incredible story that we have here in, in this passage. You see, the very people who had known all of the story throughout the Old Testament, they knew the story of Abraham. They knew what hospitality required. They knew of the ways that God has exemplified how non-Jewish people have actually taken care of God's people and says, you know what, remember that you were once strangers, that you were once foreigners, and yet these people have taken you in. And the very people who studied it, who memorized it, they missed it. 
And yet here for this sinful woman, there is a place at this table for anyone who is in need of grace. And that means that whether you're ultra-religious or you're not religious at all, there is a spot at Jesus' table if you are in need of grace. And that hospitality, and that makes hospitality in itself a reflection of the good news of Jesus. See, Philippians 2 reminds us, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And when we go back and we see the way that Jesus welcomed those who were sinners, welcomed those who were broken, that it's supposed to change and affect the way that we relate to one another. And we see that this is a story, this idea of hospitality would end up changing the practice of the early church from Acts chapter 2. We see it in Romans 12 in which hospitality was this expression of joy and hope. And one of the things that we have to notice from Romans is that he says, be hospitable despite the fact that you are under trial, despite the fact that you are experience afflictions. Because how many of us, when it comes to like this idea of hospitality, we would say, you know what, like I'll be hospitable when it's convenient for me to do so. Like I'll be hospitable and I'll welcome people as long as it doesn't get in the way of all the things I have going on in my life. But here we see that the Christians, despite being afflicted, despite being uh, persecuted by Rome, that they continued to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 tells us not to, sh to forget showing hospitality to strangers because by showing hospitality, we have entertained angels without knowing it. It's pointing us back to Abraham's story. When they asked Mother Teresa, why was she doing all the ministry that she was doing in India? She says, it's pretty easy when you recognize that the person that you were holding has the face of God. In 1 Peter 4, 8, it tells us, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> I love that that little slide that Peter puts in there, right? Do this without grumbling. And then 1 Timothy tells us that actually hospitality is a requirement of what it means to lead a church. So if you are an elder, you have to practice hospitality. And what's amazing to me is that Christians live such hospitable lives that Greeks actually had to come up with a word to describe the way that Christians served and cared for one another. And so they've used this word, philozenia, which actually ends up becoming what we translate the word hospitality to. And what makes that word so powerful to me is it's made up of two words. The first word is philo, which is love, where we get uh, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. And the other word, xenia, is where we get the word for others. And what makes philozenia so powerful to me is actually when you put it on contrast to the other word that we know of, and that is xenophobia, which is the fear of others. You see, what, the way that Christians loved and showed hospitality was so radical that the Greeks showed it with, they looked at the Christian community with suspicion because they said, there is no way that real people can actually love other people the way that Christians love them, unless... God has some, did something incredible in and through their life. In fact, the emperor of Rome is, wrote a letter to his friends, and he said this. He said, Christian hospitality was so effective in winning over people to the gospel that we need to get our pagan priests to start practicing hospitality like the atheists. And they referred to Christians as atheists because they believed in one God rather than the pantheon of gods. He says that our priests need to love and practice hospitality like these, these atheists in order to convert the empire back to paganism. Isn't that amazing? He's like, if only our priests could practice hospitality the same way that the Christians do, there would be more pagans in the empire. In 389, 
Basil, the bishop of Caesarea, began setting up these rooms for him to care for people who were sick. He called it the house of healing. The Benedictine monks would then take what Basil did and they began reserving a room in every one of their monasteries in order to care for those who needed medical care. There was a woman, a poor Christian widow in Rome by the name of Fabiola who was so influenced by these Benedictine rooms that she established what would be regarded as the first hospital in Rome. Don't you love that? That it's Christians who began practicing hospitality that we get things like hospitals. In fact, think about all of the words that we see related to the word hospitality that we see that Christians were the ones who were influencing that. We think about hospitals where we care for the sick. We think about hotels where we find a home away from home. We think about the hospice, a place where we can care for those who are dying. We think about hostels where we get cheap lodging and where we contract hepatitis. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you stayed in hostels, you're totally fine. But I love this. One theologian says this. He says, the gospel hospitality is where we people experience healing and belonging. And ultimately, it was an invitation to experience the goodness of the kingdom of heaven. See, here's why all of this nerdy stuff matters. It matters because hospitality is what the mission of God looks like in public. Hospitality is what the mission of God looks like in your neighborhood. Hospitality is what the mission of God looks like in your workplace. Hospitality is where the mission of God looks like on your soccer fields. You see, the gospel has been passed on for generations through the generosity of hospitality. And we know that it's not easy. You see, it requires us to step back and for us to think, okay, God, when I practice hospitality, I need to sit and reflect and think about what is it that you have done for me? And when I sit and reflect on all that you've done for me, I want that to be reflected in what I do for others. If that's, does that make sense? What God has done for me, I want to reflect that to others. The grace that God has lavished on me, I want to lavish on others. And frankly, I don't know about you, but I feel like we need this in our culture more than ever. You see, our idea of together is actually synonymous with tribalism, isn't it? That I don't mind being together as long as the people who sit around my table, the people who sit in the chairs next to me, believe the same things that I do. You see, I think the hospitality is so powerful in a culture that is so easily uh, moved to just canceling somebody out who doesn't agree with them. And what I love about hospitality is, is it's transformation, transformational for communities because when we begin to fear that somebody else doesn't believe like we do or thinks differently that, than I do, that when we receive that impulse that we just need to get out of here, or I just need to go somewhere else, I just need to move to a different state, that we causes us to stay, that love compels us to stay at the table. You see, I believe in a culture that is starving for meaningful connections, where loneliness is epidemic, that Christians have hospitality literally written into our spiritual DNA, and we don't even realize how powerful it is. And so what could this mean for you? What does it mean for you? Think about what that is. You don't need to have a home to be hospitable. Because hospitality is all about a posture of your heart, ready to give generously of your very presence. Maybe for you, it just starts with going out of your way to saying hi to that person that you feel like has been on your mind at work 
but for whatever reason, you're just like, ah, that's just like weird pizza from last night, right? For you to take that moment and say, I'm going to go out of my way and I'm going to meet that person. For Kate and I, uh, what this has meant for us is for many years is welcoming students at the table. Um, for me, growing up in a home where as soon as my dad died, my family moved from house to house to house, and we never stayed in one place for longer than a year. In fact, the longest time I had lived in one place was when I went to college and lived in a dorm for about nine months. And I just remember thinking, gosh, like not feeling that feeling of like desiring a home and not having a home. And so when Kate and I got married, we wrote into our vows that we are going to be a family and a people who practice hospitality. And for us working with students for all these years, that meant that the table was literally the center of our home. And so in throughout some of these photos that we have just have taken, whether you're in the front yard or you're in the backyard, we wanted hospitality to be a part of what we do. In fact, I think Anna, yeah, in the green is right there. Um, but we would do these things because we said, you know what, for all of those students, maybe they don't have a, a, a solid family home that they're a part of. We want to be that surrogate family for them. This is what it looked like for many years for us. And so what I want to ask you is this, is what do you have that you can offer as hospitality? It could be your car. It could be you just giving a ride. It could be you just riding a car. Whatever it is that you have, just start there and then let God do the rest. And so I want us to consider a couple of things as we begin to wrap up today of what this could look like for you this week. The first thing that you can do is that you can practice presence. You don't need to have a home to practice hospitality. Jesus was homeless, but he practiced reverse hospitality and being with people. Maybe this means for you to take that extra effort and going out of your way to offer a gospel of grace for somebody. Maybe you do a coffee run with somebody instead of saying like, hey, like I'm just gonna get coffee for you. But you're like, hey, you wanna come with me? You want to come be a part of the little coffee run that we're doing together and get to know who that person are, who that person is. And I know for those of you guys who right now you're like looking at me and you're like, well, Steve, you're like an extrovert, which is true, okay? Like high E, and you're like, I'm an introvert. Like, how do I begin to do this? Uh, this is totally true because for me, one of the things that's, that I have to be honest with you about is that as an extrovert, one of the challenges that I have is that I am a professional schmoozer, okay? Like I don't actually know people like on a deep level. And so for me, what I have to practice as an extrovert is to be fully present with the person in front of me. Because what happens when I enter in a room, I'm like, hey, 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 okay, I did my thing. Like, I'm ready to go. But what Jesus is actually offering here is he's offering presence. And so even if, so whether you're an introvert, maybe your gift is that you can only focus on one person at a time. And I will say, you know what? Like, that's exactly what I'm asking for. And the challenge that God asked me as an introvert is to actually pay attention to the person in front of me and not look at who's behind them. And that's something that for all of us, there's room for us to move. The second thing that we can do is that we can make margin. Make margin in our schedule to be interruptible because it takes discipline. You see, one of the biggest barriers to us being able to practice hospitality, especially for us as a family in this season where we're running from one thing to the next thing, is that there is literally no room in my calendar for me to be hospitable. And that ends up being the, the biggest hindrance to, being, uh, to practicing hospitality. The last thing that we could do is we could take a risk. We can take a risk to take a step towards other, uh, somebody who's an other, to take a step by, uh, to love by listening to somebody who maybe has a different perspective than you. And what I want to challenge you to is to go about your life and go about your day praying with your eyes open. Because when you pray with your eyes open, you're going to begin to sense this prompting in which God is going to say, hey, you should, you should ask about this person. You should reach out to this person. And we begin to do that. You can just let God do the rest. 
And the thing that's amazing is that in these moments, it doesn't mean that you need to abandon your convictions, but it just means that he's, God is inviting you to something more. Consider that hospitality is not a spiritual gift for the few, but it's an invitation of the spirit for everyone, for every one of us. Something that I pray about often is that the more mature I get in my faith, I want to move towards those whom I would determine as the other more. This doesn't mean that I have to abandon all the things I care about, but it means for me that I'm kind of constantly having a posture in which the grace that God has shown to me is what I want to show to others. Um, in this past year at Valley, um, they gave me a group of students that were like, okay, the students who are the most like anti-Christian that like are like against what we do here at this school the most, we're going to give them to you, okay? And Steve, I want you to, to just do your best to just love these students, right? And I just remember sitting in this room, gathering these students around, and they would just stare at me, right? Like everything I did, you know? And at one point, like once it gets silent, they raised their hand. They're like, can we be done now, Pastor Dang? Okay? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I've lost my touch, okay? I've worked with students for like 20 years. I don't know how to do this. And so I went back to what I always knew, and that is just to keep showing up. I'm just going to keep showing up in their life. And I remember, like, I'd be like, okay, like, what are you doing? You know, you're in a play, I'm going to go to your play. Like, you're in a sport, I'm going to go to your sport. Like, wherever you're going to be, I'm going to practice the reverse hospitality. I'm going to keep showing up in an annoying way. I'm going to go there, I'm going to be loud, I'm going to bring you Gatorade, I'm going to cheer for you, right? And we're going to see what happens. And what was amazing, when we got to the very end of the year, I was like, oh, man, I don't feel like I made a dent at all. And then one of them was like, hey, we were just talking. He's like, hey, Pastor Steve, um, on Saturday I'm having this graduation party. Like, and I just wanted to invite you to come. And I just remember thinking, yes, I'm in. And what it told me is this, is that there is power when you go out of your way to meet people where they are. Whether they agree with you or not, whether they believe the same things as you or not, when you practice reverse hospitality, it makes a gospel difference. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for the fact that hospitality is not some catchphrase. It's not some value that we write on the wall. But it's a reflection of the reality of what you've shown us. That you've shown us such generosity that when we were once enemies of you, you've called us friends. And that you invite us to the table to experience your good grace. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider the relationships we have in our week this week, the people who cross in and out and cross our paths, help us to see them the way that you see them and help us to recognize the grace that you have given us is the grace that we can show others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Steve, for being here this morning. What he, what he speaks is truth in all of those things of who he is including the part where he's paying attention to other people when we have coffee. Just kidding. That's part of who you need to be together, to love and to bless one another. So as we go off from here, let me read you the prayer we've been praying every week through this series and next week. This will be the focus of a message. And this is our prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory 
and praise of God. God bless you all. Have an amazing day and have an amazing week. And just see and listen to how God has those spaces for you to bless others. Let's be that, church. Let's be that. God bless you.